Welcome to the Master Lectures Podcast, where we feature lectures on the Bible and theology from leading scholars. In today's episode, we hear from Mariam Kamel Kovalishan. Dr. Kovalishan is Assistant Professor of New Testament Studies at Regent College in Vancouver and earned her PhD from the University of St. Andrews. Dr. Kovalishan's research has centered on the Epistle of James, and she has co-authored a commentary on James for Zondervan and has also published several articles in books and journals. She lives in Vancouver with her husband and son. In this lecture, Dr. Kovalishan talks about the profound insights into the Christian life the Book of James can offer. She discusses the themes and structure of the epistle, noting the recurring theme about wealth and poverty. Dr. Kovalishan suggests that James's wisdom is born out of humility and that the book is highly pastoral, making it very relevant to Christians today. If you like what you hear, please visit our website at masterlectures.zonervanacademic.com where you can watch more of Dr. Kovalishan's lectures on James, along with thousands of other lectures on the Bible and theology. And now, please enjoy this lecture from Mariam Kamel Kovalishan. For a small book, James presents a surprising number of challenges. It contains a significant number of difficult pronouncements, best known perhaps for being faith without works is dead, but let not many of you become teachers because you will, you know you will incur a stricter judgment. It's certainly not of particular comfort to this teacher, at least. This epistle has definitely had a rough path. Once, as a visiting preacher to a local con- church, I was informed by a congregant that they didn't like James because it was too bossy, which, given that almost half the verses have imperatives, it does seem like a fair complaint, but it misses the point of this book, which is highly pastoral. Martin Luther wondered if it belonged in the canon because he thought it preached so little of Christ. That's a critique that Bruce Mesker recently corrected when he noted that Luther was right in applying the criterion that whatever promotes Christ is apostolic, but he was wrong in not recognizing that the epistle of James also promotes Christ by its practical application of the Sermon on the Mount. Along with Not Enough Jesus, the letter has consistently been faulted for contradicting Paul on the relationship of faith and works, which comes down to a misreading of James. And liberationist theologians have argued that Northern and Western scholars have intercepted the letter, thereby avoiding the full force of its teaching on wealth and poverty, a charge that unfortunately too often has been proven true. On the other hand, prosperity gospel advocates have appealed to apparently a blank check promises regarding prayer to spread their teachings of name it and claim it, but that reveals a faulty vision of God, of prayer, and of faithfulness. James, however, rises above all these critiques to continue to challenge the church. In contrast to Luther's dislike of it, this is one of the most profound insights into Christian life that we could imagine. It is focused on wrestling with the practical implications of the gospel, and as such should be of interest to all Christians, and is definitely of relevance to each of us. Intriguingly, Dale Ellison has pointed out that the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous were derived from the epistle, so much so that the early leaders considered naming AA instead naming it the James Club, showing the epistle's remarkable application potential. 
When we omit this epistle from our liturgy and our lives, we risk missing the essential practicality that our faith has for how we live our daily lives. Approaching the epistle is difficult, though, because the basic background questions do not have clear answers. Since what we do have is the text of the epistle, for which is its own source of data about itself, we begin with the text itself and examining its content and its structure. The outline of James is in debate, but the main consensus now is that James is comprised of a dozen or so main passages with some introductory or transitional sections along the way. James 1.1 gives the standard epistolatory greeting and address, marking this as an epistle. Then James 1.2-11, or 12, which seems to function as a hinge, comprises the thematic foundation of the letter, introducing the three topics that will recur throughout, a Christian response to trials, the source of wisdom, and a right attitude to poverty and riches. Less unanimity surrounds the subdivision of 112 or 13 to 27, but likely it breaks at verse 18. Thus, we view 12 to 18 as pursuing the theme of trials and temptations, and 19 to 27 as stressing the need to do as well as hear God's word. And then verses 26 to 27 act as a possible thesis statement. Chapter 2 divides quite neatly into verses 1 to 13 and 14 to 26, the first half warning against discrimination, which develops the theme of riches and poverty, and the second half continues the theme from chapter 1 on the need to obey, not merely a firm belief in God. The warning of judgment in verses 12 to 13 again acts as a hinge, setting up the warning question in verse 14, can such faith save them? Chapter 3 also divides into two neat halves, verses 1 to 12 on the power of the tongue, and verses 13 to 18 contrasting God's wisdom with that of the world. Chapter 4 is either two or three sections, with verses 11 to 12 occasionally placed on its own, or kept with verses 1 to 10 calling the community to repent and worship God in humility. And verses 13 to 17 then caution business people against falling into pride, reliance on their own business acumen, reminding all of us that our lives are dependent entirely on God's sovereignty. Finally, chapter 5 is the most contested chapter. 5, 1 to 6 is a clear prophetic speech against the wealthy who would oppress the poor. But some tie verses 7 to 11, or verse 12 included, to it as the response the congregation ought to take, while others see 7 to 12 as wholly independent. Verse 12 may also go with 13 to 20, which may subdivide farther into 13 to 18 and 19 to 20. And then the question is whether the two verses alone can serve as a letter conclusion, or they need more substance. Thus, the body seems to divide most neatly into subsections, while the two framing chapters of 1 and 5 present the greatest challenges to discern what the subsections are. That said, while there may be general agreement on these constituent parts, there is none regarding an overall outline. There are, however, four main approaches for understanding the logical flow of the epistle as a whole. First, Martin de Balius spearheaded the notion that James has no outline, and that 
James, indeed, is not intended to have an outline or even theology. Debelius thought that wisdom writings strung their thoughts together without thought to an overall structure. At best, grouping a few thematic sections together by catchwords. This perspective has largely been dismissed. Others now find that broad themes give a sense of structure without being particularly detailed. For instance, some suggest a key theme per chapter, such as perseverance, faith, restraint, submission, and patience. Others break the sections up differently, anywhere from three to seven sections of varying length, and label them according to their content. A third approach has been to determine two or maybe three of the key themes of the epistle as a whole, and then show how the epistle develops those, whether ideas recur in a pattern, such as Peter David's version of three themes introduced in chapter one, and then unpacked in reverse order in the body, or in an orderly fashion, such as Robert Wall's version of 119 is programmatic and setting the order for the rest of the body. Fourthly, there's been significant work lately using rhetorical or discourse analysis to unfold the internal structure of the epistle. Most notably, work by Mark Taylor and George Guthrie. This work maps out both the rhetorical intent of smaller passages, as well as suggesting a possible overall structure, in their case, a chiasm in the body culminating in a stark contrast between the righteous and the worldly wisdoms of 313 to 18. While the diversity of views on structure continue unabated, there are some points of agreement that can be highlighted. For instance, many agree that the themes are overlapping or cyclical and that chapter one serves as an introduction to the whole epistle and the body begins in chapter two. The end of the epistle is still contested, but Craig and I settled on 5, 19 to 20 as the conclusion, and thus the theme of trials continues through the common struggle with illness in 5, 13 to 18. And while we concede that our outline also remains tentative, it offers a way to highlight themes that dominate the message. Intriguingly to us, this outline offers its center on the difficulties of dealing with wealth and poverty, a theme that caused so many problems for the receiving community. As we noted, this has not always been given sufficient attention in Western studies, but definitely one that has been closely observed by struggling global Christians dealing with oppression and poverty and who find hope in James's message. This leads to the question of the circumstances of the letter, authorship, date, audience, and so on. As I mentioned earlier, the majority of this information that we have, we deduce from the letter itself, which brings with it the risk of mishearing. Proverbial and wisdom literature can be generalized wisdom for how to live, not pointed to a particular situation. But bearing that caution in mind, we can begin to draw some inferences. Regarding authorship, James 1.1 refers to the author as James, a very bold use of a very common name. It is like someone in my generation signing off with Jennifer or John, the sort of thing maybe Tom Wright could get away with, but not your average author. This indicates that the author's standing was such that if he signed the letter James, people would know who he was. There are three probable options for the identity of this James. To our disciples, although the more prominent of these was executed very early on by Herod Agrippa. The other option is the half-brother of Jesus, who took over as leader of the Jerusalem church after the scattering of the apostles in Acts 8. 
We see him figure prominently in the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15, where he is revealed as both a peacemaking moderate leader and also one to whom all sides were willing to listen and even to submit when he voiced his ruling. A character of that strength and presence in the early church would readily have been able to write a letter simply from James, and all would have recognized his authority. Likewise, his identity as the brother of Jesus fits with the subtle allusions to Jesus' teaching throughout the epistle, for he could have been present to have heard his brother teach and have had the authority to reset those teachings for his own audience. Whether or not he believed in Jesus' claims before the resurrection is still in dispute, but he apparently received his own personal resurrection appearance, as listed in 1 Corinthians 15. This James, who played such a central role through the second half of Acts, is also in the early tradition, early church traditions, designated as the author of the epistle. The tradition of James the Just as a holy figure in Jerusalem grew. Paul called him one of the pillars of the church in Galatians, and elsewhere he was titled Bulwark. Two titles Richard Bauckham has shown reveal James's crucial role in building up the new temple and the people of God. Later hagiographic accounts posited that he had knees like a camel because of the hours he spent on them praying, and that he lived in the temple courtyards praying for those who strayed in Israel, fasted regularly, and he kept Nazarite purity regulations. This is the kind of character behind the commands in the epistle to pray, and to pray faithfully, who called for his people to repent from their complacent relationship with God, and who warned against pridefulness and competitiveness. If this James wrote the epistle, then we have but to look to Josephus for an end date for when it could have been written. Josephus documents the death of James at the hands of Jewish leaders who were jealous of him during a gap in Roman leadership in Jerusalem in the early 60s. So he well knew the potential for fights for leadership could prove deadly, something he in the end experienced. Presumably, this epistle was written sometime before then, whether as early as AD 48, or which would have been around the time of the Jerusalem Council itself, or at the very latest, shortly after James's death in 62, as a collation of his writings by a disciple. We accept this James's authorship, but for those who do not, questions of authorship and dating and canonicity become intermingled. The epistle of James had a slow start in gaining widespread acceptance in the early church. So for some, this suggests that it had to do with authorship and then subsequently the date that the letter was composed. If James took seriously his role as pastoring the Jewish Christian church, however, his letter would have never had the widespread circulation the Pauline corpus had, although it would also have had enough importance to not be lost completely. Alternately, it's been suggested that this epistle was crafted to circulate as a cover letter for the general epistles, which were to act as a counterweight to the Pauline epistles. That would, in effect, make it one of the last pieces of the New Testament to be written. Others are concerned about the James-Paul argument, such as Luther's dismissal that James wanted to argue with Paul, but he did a lousy job of it. However, if James were written early on, then it is likely that the two were writing independently. They were writing to different situations, and this seems more likely to us. 
The alternative is that James gave a poorly crafted response to Paul's arguments in a rhetorically well-crafted epistle, and that to us seems harder to explain. Also, it fits with Paul's emphasis in Galatians that James had approved of his mission and his message. So while we hold a minority position, marginally minority position, we do think the most sense is made from seeing this as written by James, the brother of Jesus, at a relatively early date, written to encourage his fledgling congregation to continue in the faith. James 1.1 also identifies the recipients of this epistle, calling them the 12 tribes in the diaspora. The most natural reading of this phrase understands James to be addressing Jewish Christians outside of Israel. And when we add the outside clue that some men came from James and they came to Syrian Antioch in Galatians 2.12, there was a known strong Jewish and Jewish Christian community there. This suggests that community as the likely recipients for the letter. It is possible that the recipients are also in Judea, closer to Jerusalem, and there's nothing in the epistle that overturns the assumption that most or all of his readers are literal ethnic Jews, most of whom have become Christ followers. This makes sense given James' role as head of the Jerusalem church, and while supportive of Paul, not himself an active missionary to the Gentiles. There are some hints in the text as well that support the Syrian audience guess. For instance, the farming and weather analogies are recognizable to that area. But again, this remains a tentative best guess based on the evidence we have. Some other clues about the audience we can discern from the text can be drawn from the main themes we discuss. For instance, wisdom about wealth and poverty repeats, whether from the perspective of how to live in poverty or how the wealthy should treat those who are less fortunate. This is a general wisdom theme, but the preponderance of approaches to this topic makes the situation much more pointed. Awkwardly in the West, we often tend to read this bit a bit self-centeredly, as though we are the ones suffering. But for most of us, we risk falling at least into the business person category of 413-17 to with its warnings against pride and self-sufficiency. But socioeconomic disparities are still causing significant problems for the church. So we need to listen to James with a great deal of humility to hear his message well. His audience seems to have been idolizing the wealthy and the powerful, and they needed their attitudes reset. And if we pay attention to our own culture's idolatry with wealth, with power, with beauty, we might likely find ways that we need to reorient ourselves in line with James's definition of wisdom that is not based on worldly status, but on humility. Likewise, I won't, but we could likely all list examples from our own lives regarding when we have not exemplified control over our tongues. Uncontrolled speech was clearly an issue then, as now. Unfortunately, we none of us can call ourselves perfect for making no mistakes in speaking. These two issues cross as their obsession with wealth and power led them to demean the poorest in their own midst. And the themes also cross with James's call for the audience to endure in various trials and temptations, whether temptations to fight for status or the trials of being oppressed by the wealthy. As I said, these themes are not discreetly dealt with on their own, 
but rather they intertwine and reveal more to the patient listener as we see new aspects in each of their interrelationships, as each comes to the forefront at various points. As we go through the text, we will dive into greater depth of how James shapes his audience's imaginations regarding their words, their money, and their endurance and trials, giving a prophetic call to faithfully follow the good God who redeemed them. James does not mince words, but he is deeply pastoral in his care for his congregations, wanting them to find freedom from sin and freedom from the bondage of their own desires as they come to know and love the God who gave them new birth and brought them into a new way of life. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please visit our website at masterlectures.zonervanacademic.com to watch more lectures from Miriam Kamel Coalition, along with thousands of other lectures from nearly a hundred scholars and counting. It's kind of like Netflix for the Bible and theology. There, you can get free access to everything for your first 14 days, and after that, the price is just $14.99 a month when you enter the code PODCAST on the sign-up page. To sign up, visit the website masterlectures.zondervanacademic.com. You can also learn more about Dr. Kovalishin's commentary on James for the Zondervan Exegetical Commentary on the New Testament at zondervanacademic.com. Finally, to support this podcast, we ask two things. First, we ask that you rate and review the podcast in whatever app you're using to listen to it. Second, we ask that you share it with someone a friend, a colleague, perhaps your pastor or someone in your church. In our next episode, we'll hear from Craig S. Keener on the Seven Churches of Revelation, Part 1. Thanks for listening.